0: One of the things I find is really interesting is that entrepreneurs tend to take risks because you're an entrepreneur. Like doing an entrepreneurial venture by itself is very risky, but as entrepreneurs, we actually need to take a really risk first mindset because you have such limited resources, time and energy. Like sometimes it's just you at the start, right? Or a few other people. If you head down the wrong path, you're
1: toast. Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of the Passion for Purpose podcast, where we talk with entrepreneurs about their strategies for success and the lessons they've learned that transform their lives. I'm Eric Turnison and today we're talking with Martin Wilson. Now, as entrepreneurs, I think we can all relate to being in a position where we don't know how to get from where we are to where we want to go. I've certainly been in this position many times throughout my journey growing Member Mouse, and I haven't always had access to someone with experience who could help navigate through these situations. Now Martin's background is varied to say the least. He went from enlisting in the military after high school to working with the board of directors of Fortune 100 companies, venturing into startups and angel investing. And now he runs his own consulting business where he focuses on his passion, which is helping companies get past these exact sticking points I'm talking about. That point where there's an obstacle that's keeping growth from happening, and maybe the reasons why are known, and maybe they're not, But in any case, Martin shares how execution, removal of assumptions, and really driving into and understanding the situation is the key to moving forward. Well, how do we do this? How can we apply this to our own business or project? In this episode, I put these questions to Martin, and we specifically get into how he helped his most recent client double their revenue in just six months. Welcome to the show, Martin, and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: To get started, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background?
0: Yeah, um, well, I think I've been fortunate to do a lot of different roles. I actually, started out of high school, I went in the military, which uh, I don't recommend for most people. Um, uh, that, that was uh, especially if you think about small companies and the things most of us love about small companies. The army is, you know, the antithesis of that. Um, but, but after that, I went and got a computer science degree. So I really started on the technology side and, and built some of the earliest software-as-a-service offerings, um, like really cutting-edge stuff, great people. And for me personally, after doing that for a number of years, I just noticed a big gap in my skill set. I went to get an MBA uh, and then worked really in the strategy and turnaround space from one example is evaluating a Fortune 100 company uh, for their board of directors, and then being hired by a big investment banking firm to turn around with their companies. You know, when I look back upon all those experiences, and what I really loved most was working with passionate people on tough business problems, and uh, having the ability to make an impact, and then see the merging of strategy and execution. And so... My earlier career was all in small companies. After I got my MBA, I worked for a while in big companies, and I went back and did some. Did started my own companies, um, and then started advising small companies. And for me, coming full circle, uh, small companies represent the nexus. Really, for me, a passionate people, those tough business problems having an impact, and then really being able to do strategy and execution. Um, it also means what I really love love about small companies is, is you just get to do a lot of different roles. So sometimes I'll do just strictly coaching and advising with the CEO. You know, where we meet once a week and we go through different problems, um, or I come in and do a specific problem or project. Like, hey, we're going we want to release a new product, or we want to attack this new business channel. Let's do an evaluation of that. Uh, or maybe I'll even come in as an interim role, which I, I just got done doing coming I mean, as the VP of sales to really drive revenue for a company.
1: So that's a really varied experience, you know, you you're working for in the large companies, the Fortune 100 companies, the C-level guys and on the board, you've started your own businesses, you've worked with small businesses and so it wasn 't just like a direct linear track for you, and no
0: I mean the army Army to technology to MBA is very uh yeah there's a there's a lot of a uh, lot of weird winding routes and a lot of roles i I really quite hate it, um, but you know that kind of journey that all of us go through to figure out what you love it takes it takes failure to figure that out
1: but the thing is like you must have learned like, there must be uh, if if where you are now and how you operate as a soup, right? Each one of those things has a certain ingredient in that soup and so it's, it's interesting to me with everything that you've gone through, you know, how you've come to where you are and how that all, it, it synthesizes together to, to drive what your approach is and how you focus on what you're doing.
0: Yes, yeah, well into your question of, of like how I chose this route and specifically like the growth paths, because there's a lot of people out there who work in small companies or like big companies or like medium companies. But for me, growth, what really attracted to me and why I'm really focused on small companies around the growth space is I've
1: always been super passionate about customers and the sales side. If you kind of think about the whole customer
0: experience, it's about understanding the problem, figuring out the right solution, being able to sell and then service them and and to me like in in a weird way like that actually gives me goosebumps figuring out what product do they need how do you sell it to them how do you serve it to them Um, because all that leads to cash which is you know all of us need that to grow and to survive and to thrive so
1: and you know reflecting on my experience with member i think to call it you know and, and let me know if you resonate with this but to, to just restrict it to growth, I feel, is a little bit limiting because I feel like growth is a byproduct, and it's really a byproduct of, you know, in their phases of business. Like, you can go to zero to 100 pretty easily, but to get from 100 to 101 and is hard, but once you get to 101, you can get to 1,000. And then to get from 1,000 to 1,001 is hard. And so it's like, um, it seems like what you're passionate about is when you get to those natural plateaus and you need to get decide how you get from where you are to the next growth phase. And it's usually um, not obvious what the thing is, that's keeping you from getting to that next area.
0: Yeah. That's a, so I think that's a really important point that um, there's kind of two things. I think if I extract what you're saying here is there are, you know, phases as a business, and in between those phases, there's there's this idea of a valley of death, and somebody else came up with that idea, yes. I remember reading it years ago, right? Um, and, and there's this guy who, who, anyone who's listening to this podcast who, who is interested, there's a really good book called, um, yeah, so it's Runningly, that's the name of the book, um, it's a great, great book, um, but it talks about, especially for startups, what are those phases For instance, right, the first phase is you're just trying to figure out the problem solution space. Um, And then once you get a product that you have a market fit, then the next, the third phase is actually scaling those up. And in between those, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you can do wrong um, and out of sequence. That means that you kind of hit this valley of death and you just flounder and die. Um, and it's hard to know because it's not codified what you should do at a, each phase. Um, there's some certain things you, you need to do, but there's a lot of things you can do incorrectly that keep you in that valley of death.
1: And I know for me, you know, looking back, it, it's hard to even know that you're in the valley of death. Yes. Because um, like I know in retrospect, I can see, oh, I spent like X amount of time floundering around trying, you know, kind of like doing that thing where, you know, like the definition of insanity is to try the same thing multiple times and expect a different result, <laughs> right. you know, but you don't, you don't, you don't have the experience or the context or the perspective to see that you're doing that. Yes. And so, so I imagine the point at which somebody comes to you, do they, do they usually recognize that they're in that situation? That's a really good question. When you say the situation, do you mean the valley of death or that they have a problem? Yeah. So they, so they're like, okay, like we're banging our head against the wall why can't we get from x thousand million dollars in revenue to y and what we've tried these different things and nothing seems to be working or ba- budging the needle too much like what is it that we're missing I think I think what's more important is the
0: where they are mentally um, like I think of one of the one of the litmus tests when I'm talking to companies one of the things I'm trying to understand is do they feel like this, like do they really feel like they have a problem? Um, and are they willing to get out of their comfort zone to solve this problem? And if they're not, I don't usually, I don't usually work with them because none of us are gonna be happy with the results, right? If, if you're not willing to get outside your comfort zone and you don't actually think you have a problem, um, then we're gonna be fundamentally disagree. Because if you bring me in, you that's the whole idea. <laughs> It's like, you have a problem. right? Right. Um, and so, and one of my big tests is sometimes I get brought in at, um, you know, like a VP of sales, right? Or a product, a uh, VP of product will say, hey, I need some help in this area. But if I'm talking to the CEO and the CEO isn't on board with, yes, we have a problem, we need to get this stuff fixed. I know I'm walking in a situation where uh, there's going to be, a, you know, typically a big uphill battle.
1: Right. And that's that's a personal choice that you make. You, you're not the guy who's going to force somebody to learn that they have a problem. You want them to be ready. Yes. Ready. They, they recognize it. They want to change because fighting the battle of, you know, somebody getting ready to change is it can't be only that only somebody can do that themselves. Right. really, And it's kind of a thankless job. Yes. If you're the one who has to do that. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and, and the takeaway for
0: entrepreneurs, I think you and I, Eric, have learned this really well. Is Are, are you trying to convince your customer to buy your product or is, uh, be, because they have a need? Or are you trying to convince your customer to buy your product and then also convince them that they really have this need? Right. And so are you making a market or are you fulfilling a need in a market? And, and I certainly exactly. my, in my career, I have tried to make markets. And if you do it, you can make a ton of money, right? You, you can mm-hmm. be a leader in the space. Think of YouTube, right? Like YouTube kind of made a market.
1: Right. And, and, but that really you think is. of those like little fidget thingies that right. people play. Right. With. Like, yes. Where did that come? Where from? did that come? Right. <laughs> and so, you know, if you can make a market,
0: that yeah, you and, and you do it right, you can make a ton of money. You can go really big. That's where you know even the bike sharing services, right? There, you could argue that they're trying to make a market because right now they don't really have, have they're not able to profitably do this business model. That, that's the same thing for me, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to convince someone that they need my service, uh, and, and also convince them that they have a problem. I want to convince them that yes, you have a problem. Maybe I'm the right fit. Maybe I'm not.
1: Right, and and I think um, what was the word that you used? Uh, comfort. Like, are you willing to change? Are you willing yes. to go into an area of dis- discomfort? Because it seems to be that that's that's a good litmus test. Because it, another perspective to look at it is whatever discomfort you're feeling may be the exact thing that's keeping you from going forward. Mm -hmm. It it may be that that discomfort is the reason why you don't see where the opportunities are and therefore naturally if you want to pursue those opportunities you have to push beyond that discomfort and uh, keep it from holding you back.
0: You you know a good personal story I have and this is this is partly due to my own hubris and kind of sense of independence. is when I was younger I, I was I was in the middle of developing an app not much under, but about ten years ago, and it was you know when apps were were relatively new to the scene, and I was going to develop either a website or an app, and I and I had done some customer interviews. I really felt like I knew I knew how to develop a website much better than I did an app, and I I was a little biased in my impressions. I went out to a few advisors, and I was like, here's my problem. I'm, I want to build an app, sorry a website instead of an app. Here's why. And every one of my advisors, except one, was saying, you need to build an app. Like, this is the future. This is the space in which you should, you should operate, and here's why. And I, I didn't listen to them. Um, and, and, I didn't listen to, and I didn't listen to them because I was uncomfortable with my own ego and getting out of that space. And I was also uncomfortable because I knew I'd have to go then get and build a, learn how to build an app or right, hire someone to build an app. Where I knew how I could do a website really quickly and so for me it's particularly like I just failed to get outside my comfort zone there and the result I think I missed a pretty big opportunity
1: well I, I have a similar story with MemorMouse. mouse I mean when I when I actually was starting and working on MemorMouse, mouse I was absolutely adamant that I did not want to start a software business right. I was doing everything possible that I didn't want to be in software I was looking at e-products you know, and then the opportunities kept coming that were saying, hey, can we use this software that you built for your own site? And I was like, no, because I felt uncomfortable that I didn't want to go there. Yeah. I was basically ignoring the signs that were telling me this is the direction to go. Yes.
0: Yeah, it's funny how all this stuff becomes so much meta um, about just your, the introspective nature of who we are and how we operate as people and kind of these underlying assumptions or underlying bias. Uh, that we bring to the table. And, and I think for every entrepreneur, the journey of self-realization happens because it's so much harder to be an entrepreneur. It's so much more mentally challenging, emotionally challenging than going to work for a major company where you kind of slot it in, right? And you don't, you're not necessarily pushed outside your comfort zone very often.
1: So, so yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I find that a lot of and it was surprising to me that a lot of the journey of building a business ended up being uh, more of a personal development journey than, than anything else. I mean, obviously, successes and things were reflected in the business. Um, but one of the things specifically uh, I'm interested in learning from you is my understanding is you just wrapped up a, a project with a client yeah. where the result was that their revenues were doubled. Um, and I was wondering if you can... Tell us about this project, what your approach was, how did you recognize the opportunities and ultimately work with them to make that change come about?
0: The genesis of the project was um, the CEO reaching out to me and saying, hey, I just want to have a conversation about this. They had a great brand in the marketplace and this was a niche project, a niche product. So this is total addressable market in the U.S. was maybe 100 to 200 million. So... It's still a relatively good-sized market. Um, And they were operating, they were one of the major players in this market, but it was a very packed market. It was a newer industry. And the, the challenge they had is the CEO was just an amazing entrepreneur, but he was really good at getting a product figuring out what the problem is figuring out how to get the product to market getting a good product market fit they're at the stage where they're trying to figure out how do we how do we scale up the company and so coming in it was very clear to me as we started talking i always start when i meet with someone really talking about do they have a consistent vision of what the company is because if the ceo or the c-level executives don't have an aligned vision about where the company is going and what some of the problems are, that to me is is one. like Step one, you've got a big disconnect. And that oftentimes happens. So in my process of sitting down with the company, I kind of went around and just talked to all the high-level people, including some of the customer service people. And it was very clear to me that there was a central theme around where the company was going and what the big problems were. So that was great. And then it became more of okay, how do we do this? And in this case, the CEO was feeling that he was really good at the product and operation side, but he didn't have a good focus on the sales and he just was spread too thin. So, so kind of that this engagement played out at the end of a week, we had a pretty good sense of where we needed to go. We didn't exactly know how to execute on those, but we had spent a good amount of time making sure that we are solving the right problem. And then you can start diving into, well, what are some ways to solve those problems? And so that was, I mean, in a nutshell, that was a six-month process of working with the CEO every day, working with the sales and marketing team every day to really tighten up their relationships with distributors, dealers, and their customers, kind of a full life cycle tweaking. And the way I always break things down is is like what's our big hairy goal we're trying to achieve in this? How do we measure success? And then let's really start getting pretty tactical. And how do you execute the next 90 days? Um, and then, you know, break that down to 30 weekly and then even daily. And so one of the things I always do is I always do daily meetings with my team, right? Those, those quick five to 10 minute standups at the start of the day, just making sure everyone's focused.
1: Now, in my experience, it's, it's not always that difficult to identify what the problem is. Well, it, sometimes it is, but let's, let's ignore that for this. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming you know what the problem is, right? Right. You may know what the problem is for a long time, but what is that? What is, you know, and then you talk about, okay, we identify the problem. But in this scenario, it, it seemed like most people were, you didn't have to convince people. Like most people based on who you talked to knew about what the issue was, where they wanted to go. There was, right. There wasn't too much work that you had to do there, but okay so you know what the problem is now but given that they knew that but it what weren't able to move against it, but then you come in and w- what were the things that you did differently the, the, I'm thinking of the arch stones like there there's these things that you know when you just like judo chop them in the right, right way you know like things fall in the place like what were those or what are those things when you know you know what you need to do but for some reason it just isn't happening yeah. well let me make one comment to the problem
0: statement that i find is very common is that there, there gets to be a lot of groupthink where everyone especially at small companies where there's not a lot of political stuff going on like bigger companies are very different but in smaller companies you tend to maybe you do ignore a problem but i think what happens a lot is you 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 realize this is a problem like let's say um Let's a big issue, right? Like you're not getting enough revenue because customers are turning over a lot, right? Like that is the problem. But if you start to drive down, one technique is always to ask the five whys, right? Like the problem is that customers are churning a lot, but you need to really dive down into well, what's really the problem here. Why are customers turning a lot? So you ask that question, you're like, well, we've got these three things, right? Like we're in this example, right? Like, um, We don't have good follow-up to customers Uh, once they purchase. uh, We're not delivering things on time. So customers are sometimes returning things. We don't have good customer support. So as you start to drill down there, I think you start to get really specific in understanding what the problems are that are driving some of these bigger issues like revenues or costs. Um, And then in those, kind of get to your question here of how do you do those? I think one of the techniques that works really well for me is being really open about and work the team about okay, What do we think the problems are? What are the underlying assumptions on those problems? Doing things like the five whys, you start to develop your list of solutions. And then from that list of solution, and usually there's some big surprises in there. Like I was talking about 50% of the solutions they, they knew, but we uncovered a whole bunch of other solutions. And then it's usually a pretty simple exercise. And I usually just get the team together in the room. And we're like, hey guys, we're going to have lunch and we're going to spend two hours on this. Um, and we're going to really like brainstorm through these solutions. And we're going to start to understand what are the costs around uh, fixing these solutions uh, or, sorry, implementing these solutions. What are the, um, the benefits? And what are some underlying assumptions we we make? And so a great example that happens is people will say, well, emails need to look better. But I, I find that oftentimes people have all these underlying assumptions. Like if we send out better emails, well, we will get better click rates. You're like, well, what's that based off like? Tell me where the data is that's showing this. What customer has said this? Where do we get this? Um, I think one of the things that bringing someone from the outside is really great is I can just ask simple questions and really start to uncover where the problems exist and and the solutions and all the underlying bias and assumptions around those because, you know, all this stuff takes time. One of the things I find is really interesting is that entrepreneurs –
1: Tend to take
0: risks because you're an entrepreneur. Like doing an entrepreneurial venture by itself is very risky. But as entrepreneurs, we actually need to take a really risk in first mindset because you have such limited resources, time, and energy. Like sometimes it's just you at the start, right? Or a few other people. If you head down the wrong path, you're toast. Where big companies, I mean, you can plow $20 million into a failed project. And if it has a 3% chance of making it, but it's worth you know a billion dollars, you'll do that all day. But as a startup, you really can't do that. And so see, everyone wants to do things that are effective, but I think oftentimes we get blocked and we make those bad decisions because fundamentally we don't understand the problem. We haven't dove deep enough. We're impatient to get results. Uh, and then we don't, we don't figure out ways to simply test assumptions. Like you can test assumptions around click-through rates on better emails, right? You can run a you can run a simple test, uh, split test, and see a few times to see if you have better click rates. So that's an easy thing to figure out. Some of these other things they just take longer to figure out, right? If you're especially if you're a B two B company. So I've, I've worked with B two B companies. You know, you have a six month sales cycle. You don't want to implement a big change to your sales cycle because that can really impact your revenue without really understanding it and really testing it out.
1: And reflecting on my journey with Member Mouse, you know, um, when you're starting f- it, totally from scratch, you know, I look at it like kind of a metaphor of ship mm-hmm. size. When you're starting off, you basically, you're in a rowboat. You can turn on a dime, you know, you can do whatever you want. Nobody's going to say anything about it. You're obviously not successful, you know, but once you get successful, there's a different operating mentality that has to happen. It's like the ship's bigger. If you want to turn it, it takes more resources, just effectively to turn the ship takes more energy. And therefore, if you're going to put, um, your invest your energy into a direction, you have to learn to, like you said, test your assumptions. Cause that, that was a big thing for me. Um, you know, there was this, there was this, uh, Bleed over space where the ship became big, but I was still operating like it was the right. wild west yeah. like oh well, you know, we can still make decisions based on we were when we were yeah. just a rowboat yeah. and you, you quickly realize oh well Not all of our like you said not all of our assumptions are correct and it's far more cost-effective to take the time have a little mm-hmm. patience take the time test the assumptions, ask the questions and then move forward based on the mm-hmm. consensus. But it was definitely something to learn through the experience of doing it the wrong way. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, one of, uh, just an offhanded piece of advice that I would give every entrepreneur is find a few mentors and talk to them every once in a while on a monthly basis. This is actually super easy to find uh, because you just usually have to ask a few people. If you're in an entrepreneurial city, especially like Portland, Seattle, or even through LinkedIn, I know so many older entrepreneurs, they love talking to younger entrepreneurs, right? A half hour call, they, they do it in the car, um, he or she, it, 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 it's like giving back to the community because as an entrepreneur, you're going to make, if you especially if you're a first time entrepreneur, maybe even a second time entrepreneur, you're going to fundamentally just, naturally make a lot of mistakes because you're in that uncomfortable zone all the time you're trying to do stuff you've never done it before um get an advisor because you can quickly ping them and be like hey i'm doing this uh, and here's the problem what are your thoughts (laughs) you know they can be like no i've done that before that doesn't work and maybe it's right maybe it's wrong but
1: you don't you don't want to waste that
0: time and people really do love to help out entrepreneurs
1: yeah. And I think one of the biggest values of that is the, not only the ears of experience, but also that, that external perspective. Because a lot of times we can live so long with something that we believe that we end up having a multi-leveled rationalization process for why we think it's correct. Yes. But denial denial
0: is, is fantastic, right? I mean, the human race, I think, has fundamentally survived through this idea of denial, right? Like, Hey, that's gonna to happen to somebody else, not me. Like we are so good at
1: denial. Right. And so that external experience is extremely valuable. But going back to your earlier point, it means absolutely nothing to go get a mentor and get on the phone with somebody if you don't recognize you have a problem. And number two, what I was when I was listening to you talk about uh, working with a team and then executing on the solution. Yes, you have to know what the problem is and agree on it, but you also have to have made it a priority to address it. Yes. If if it's not a priority, then you, you, you say, yes, it is a problem. These are the solutions, but then you're like, oh, but these other things are more important. We'll put that on the shelf. Yes. Uh, we we
0: could talk for hours about how I solve that.
1: <laughs> well, is there, a, is, is there a 30 second version? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, there was this great, uh, what I'll say is there's this great New York Times article that I read years ago and I was talking, the CEO was talking about only doing 90 day goals. Um, and I still have it in a scrapbook somewhere. But what I realized, especially as an entrepreneur, is I would say take take these things and do them religiously and this will really help amplify your success, which is as a company, figure out what your big hairy goal is, right? If you want to have you know, hundred thousand people use member mouse, right? Like, let's say that's a goal, right? Like that's your big hairy goal. I, every 90 days I would get with my team and usually it's just the executive team to start with, right? But we would spend a whole day thinking about our problems and analysis at least once a quarter thinking about the next 90 days. Um, because, you know, you want to figure out what should be our goals these quarters and you can't make too many, right? You can't do, I would say no more than five things you should be focused on in a quarter, And these can be themes, but I'd like them to be more goal-specific, you know, like smart goals, right? Smart, measurable, actionable, realistic, and timely. And and so you say, like, hey, 90 days. And everyone can do a 90-day timeframe, right? Like in the human being, 90 days, it's in front of you. And so 90 days, I would break down with the team, like here's what we're going to be focusing on the next 90 days. And then, you know, we break it down into 30 days. And then every week on Monday, I would sit down with – um, or each department would sit down with their team and you're literally like, here's the focus for the week. And, and we write it up on the whiteboards, right? So the, you know, the operations group would have this, customer service group would have this, but you can see how all those tie together and it creates this continuity. That's not this one team's doing this, this one team doing this. It's all back to the 90 days, which links to the big, the,
1: the question that raises in my mind is like, so it reminds me of um, going to the airport this past weekend. I had to get my friend to the airport. The airport was an hour away, but we also wanted to stop at two places along the way and some stuff had to happen there. So I was like, okay, we want to get to the airport on time. That's the big hairy goal in this situation. That sounds sketchy. You're like, some things had to happen along the way, but I can't tell you. <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Okay, perfect. Now I may make it up to make it more interesting. But, um no, you know, so we had to go to the the co-op first to get some food. Very important. That's very Portland, right? Going to the co-op. Yeah. Exactly. And then we had to go to Kohl's to get a suitcase. So I basically was like, okay, it's going to take this amount of time to get to the co-op, it's going to take this amount of time to get from there to Kohl's, it's going to take this amount of time to get to the airport. So I know exactly just time-wise how long it's going to take. And then I'm like, we'll spend this amount of time in the stores. So then I tacked that on. I'm like, okay, we need 3 hours to get there. So to me, the the ease of that exercise, knowing where your destination is, mm-hmm. you know the distance. So it's a static number. Right. You know how much time it's going to take. So it's really easy to plan how to get from point A to point B, even if you've got some points you need to hit along the way. For me, what becomes a little bit muddled in in dealing with big hairy goals of the business is... Those metrics aren't so obvious. Sometimes it's like, okay, if I want to get from ten thousand to one hundred thousand customers, right. well, obviously I know that's a difference of ninety thousand. But what am, what's my mechanism? What, what's the car in this situation? What is the gas? What is yes? So to me, that can be a stumbling block. Even figuring those things out, because you, without that, you can't even have a chance of planning and measuring. Y- yes.
0: So, so, what I would say to that is, yes, you, you, in order for your business to get there, uh, yes, you, you have to figure out what that course is, but that course is not a straight linear path, right? Like, it's not, I'm going to do this correctly for net, for 180 days, and then I pivot to this. Like, the, the fact that you're saying, I don't actually know, is exactly why i felt as an entrepreneur and have had countless examples of this 90 days are a really good time frame to work off of cuz you're saying there's going to be basically to get this because we're un- this is uncharted we don't know we're going to fail a lot and it's okay to fail we don't want to we don't want to fail intentionally but we do want to fail by design and so planning out 90 days and then sometimes breaking it down by 30 days and even weekly you can say Hey, we're going to run this test this week because we believe that if we make this, you know, we do this biz dev partnership, right? Let's say you do a biz dev partnership with, um, I'm just going to say WordPress because that's easy, right? Um, But you do this biz dev partnership with WordPress. um, You think, your your guess is that, okay, that will drive 10,000 more customers, um, right? And so you're going to make that part of a 30-day goal, let's say. And so, but at the end of it, it allows you to test that out and look at it and see if it actually worked or not, because so much of what we're doing, they are our best guesses at what will actually work. So that's why I, I really like that 90 day. Cause yeah, it's a, you know, you, you hear this, this analogy all the time of, you know, you're really taking a sailboat and you're zigging and zagging back and forth. The reason for 90 days and really, being able to test your problems on a continuous basis is you're trying to limit your zigging and zagging as much as possible because those
1: zags are really expensive. And also make sure that the line that goes through the center of all those zags, that is the least pointing to the island that you're going to. Yes. Right. Right. And that's
0: where the big hairy goal is in place. And, and I think, especially as a leader in an organization, even if you only have four employees, one of your big things you want to do is, Make sure everyone's as much as possible moving in the right direction. And it doesn't, especially in a small company, it doesn't take that much work to make sure everyone's aligned in the right direction. Because people get, I mean, we all know it, right? People go in, they work for a day, and they can do a whole day doing emails and not actually driving significant value to the business. And that's what I think as an entrepreneur, you you really want to make sure all your people every day are Driving value for your business.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. When people come to talk to me and they wanna start something or do something, one of the recommendations I feel coming up for me is like, make sure whatever you're looking to do, you're interested in. Yes. Because it's, I find that the slow and the steady wins the race thing still applies. Yes. Even in today's fast paced market, because if you do it slow and steady, the organic nature of that takes care of a lot of the like quick success. Like I, I can't even imagine if, if from year one to year three, we'd gotten to where we are at year nine, right? Yeah. It would have been way too quick. You would have had to get external funding. You'd have to do all these things to get your trademarks in order and all this stuff that has taken years in a comfortable kind of pattern that fit with my lifestyle and everything. Right. And there weren't any sacrifices that I had to make um, in doing that process. And most of the time I enjoyed what I was doing because it was naturally aligned with my interest. Yes.
0: Yeah. There's not, there's not a lot of overnight successes, right? I, I, going back to those, those three things, three things that I was mentioning earlier about the, you know, your first stage is figuring out the problem and then the solution to that. You got to spend a lot of time there. And then if you get the right market fit with your product, which is really hard to do the first time, You'll know you've got a good market fit when your product is being pulled into the market, despite your best clumsy efforts, right? Which is which is normal, right, right. And and kind going back to the idea of the valley of death, what often often happens right after product market fit is you get enough success, especially with these early adopters, that you're thinking like, let's just keep doing what we're doing. And that's that. While that's true, you want to keep doing what you're doing you really need to start thinking about, okay, now that we have a product market fit, uh, how do we solve some of these kind of fundamental problems of where our product is, or rather the customer experience or internally, so that we can effectively now scale up and reach those kind of late stage adopters, right or those middle adopters, um, which typically means you have to change our products, have better customer service, because those people won't um, accept a substandard experience. And it's, so, so it's always like what got you here is not going to get you to the next stage. And I talk a lot about that when I'm working with people, like, let's, let's take that off the table.
1: Don't assume that that will work because
0: 99% of the time it won't work.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, uh one way to look at starting businesses, it's kind of like this really, it's kind of like a sadistic, like multi-level puzzle. Yes. Like the first level of the puzzle is, is really seductively easy. It's yes. like it draws you in yes. and you solve that part of your wait. There's another puzzle underneath us. Yes. And your the momentum of it makes you, you know, forces you into yes. solving that next puzzle. it's like, okay, now I've solved that one. Everything's done. No, it's just like, keeps going, keeps asking you to reinvent, yes. widen your gaze. Yes. You know, you have to constantly keep more things in your field of vision. Uh, which means letting go of the past things you got comfortable with and thought that you were good at to move forward. To your
0: point on passion, I mean, one of my previous startups was a mental performance company, really targeting young athletes. Um, So, you know, I spent a lot of time understanding that space. It was also really helpful for me as an entrepreneur. But you're absolutely right. If you're approaching this and you don't have passion for what you're doing, it's going to be really hard to get through those tough times because they're going to happen um, you're going to more likely give up uh, and, and grit, you know, that grit to kind of keep working, that perseverance is much easier to do that when you have passion for what you're doing. Because <laughs> willpower is finite. Like they've done research on this. Once you get uh, up to the amount of kind of forcing yourself to do something, that's when that little voice inside you is like, Martin, you're an awesome person. You deserve to play video games and drink, you know, like 20-minute scotch tonight. So don't do that hard task that you know you need to do. Like, let's go let's let's go have some fun. And and that will win out eventually, Right? Like especially if you don't have the passion where you're like, no, but I, I love what I'm doing with these customers. I love what I'm doing with these kids. Yeah, it's hard, but, man, if
1: this is great. Hard but great. And it's kind of like a, a mix between passion and, like, obsession yes because I know when I was when I was working through the support side of the member mouse business that was not fun for me because no. I was I I'd just come out of I just come out of the phase where I was just building and excitement and creativity and working with people one-on-one just like really enthusiastic optimistic and then you get some success and you get people coming in and people of course are complaining that things it doesn't do what they want it to do mm-hmm. and maybe they're not on point with what they're saying, but you deal with like hundreds of these week in and week out and it never stops. Right. And to me, I had some ego built into my product cause I built it, you know? So every time they were saying something about the product, I felt a personal responsibility yes. to yeah, it. Yeah. And so that was a really hard position for me to be in. And uh passion definitely waned in that time. Sure. But my desire, but what kept me going through that phase of it was like, a different passion, a passion to, to satisfy that need that those people said that they wanted mm-hmm. to do, to do the right, to do something, the right thing. And I think I also learned through that process that you have to have a balance between what you're willing to give and what you're holding back. Mm-hmm. Because I start off and like, Oh, I just going to do everything for everybody. <laughs> and that doesn't work. Right? right. Yeah. That's not the right decision. And so, you know, kind of taking the zigzag path to figure out where's the middle path, but each, each, stage of the puzzle of the business too, like I feel like there's a different alignment of passion in the beginning. It was a passion for the product mm-hmm. Then it became a passion for, uh, getting people what they want and satisfying the customer. And now it's, and now it's the passion is more holistic. It's like, how do all these pieces work together? Right. You know, how do, how does every little thing gear fit with itself and everything runs so that when this thing turns, that thing turns and everything's efficient. Um, so it's, it's kind of a really neat puzzle that, you know, is is a specific to the person who's creating it. Yes. You know, it's it's kind of like it knows where each of us need to be tested. <laughs>
0: that's very uh it's very Jedi, right? right. <laughs> you walk into the yeah. cave every day as an entrepreneur and you're gonna get tested a little bit, you know. Exactly. You know, I would say one of the tough lessons, especially uh if you're a little bit newer to the workforce. Um, and Jeff Bezos has actually written, written this, and, and if, if people haven't don't go out and regularly read Jeff Bezos's yearly letters to shareholders, they are awesome. I recommend everyone go out, just, just read his letters to shareholders. He has so much golden advice on, on this. But one of the tough lessons I think I have learned, you guys I'm sure have learned, is understanding when you're making decisions, what kind of decision you need to make. Um, and a good shorthand for that is... Um, the impact and your ability to roll back that decision so example if you're going to fire somebody at your company that's a decision you really can't roll back easily so don't make it lightly right the, obviously there's going to be some legal impacts about this but you really want to think through big decisions that have a radical impact on your company that can't be easily rolled back where some decisions can be rolled back pretty simply. Like don't get in a big debate as a company about changing your landing page, right? Like, and, and, but I see this all the time, right? People are like, well, we gotta have like a three hour meeting on changing the landing page. I'm like, who owns this? That person, right? That person is gonna spend, you know, half a day designing three different options. Uh, The product, they're gonna meet with a product manager. They're gonna, you know, split test them based off some metrics and get them out. Right, like because if we don't like or we're not getting good metrics after two weeks on the landing page after split testing, we can roll it back. Super simple. So that's that's kind of one of the things I, I tend to work really hard on when I'm first working with companies, evaluating like how do they make decisions? Because um, t- people typically have a default, right? Like some people overanalyze, some people go with their gut, and so you need to everyone, but especially important at the top is really understand what kind of decision you're making so therefore what kind of rigor and analysis do you need to put into this before you make it